Welcome to Women in B2B Marketing, a show where CMOs, VPs of marketing, and all strong women leaders in B2B discuss their top tactics, strategies, and tips for building high-performing teams, leveraging trends, and ultimately rocking their marketing careers. Made by and for women, insightful for all. I'm your host and 15-year B2B marketer, Jane Sarah. Let's dive in. Okay. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for another episode of Women in B2B Marketing. And today I'm super excited to announce maybe one of the last podcasts of the year for Shannon. Um, Shannon Curran, VP of Marketing at Mad Kudu, and also nine-ish, eight-ish months pregnant at the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Eight and a half, almost nine, very close. Yeah. Welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of things. We were already gabbing before we turned on the mic. But one thing I always start off with is curious how you got into B2B marketing in the first place, how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So I've always worked in marketing throughout my whole career, but I didn't get into B2B until the last, like, I should have a better, like six years. I should, have, I should really know this answer. And so I worked in nonprofit, healthcare, and then higher ed so that I could go and get my MBA for free. And then as I started my MBA, I got really excited about tech. I took a few classes that I was like, oh, I think this is going to be a good fit for me. I also lived in Boston where there was like lots of tech kind of popping up. And I was really excited to get into the industry. And so I felt like it was going to be a good pace for me. It was going to be the right kind of place for me to put a lot of my like pent up professional energy. <laughs> and so I started right before I finished my MBA, I actually ended up leaving higher ed and moving to a private equity owned company called QuickBase in Boston, where I really started my B2B career. And I was there for almost three years and I grew a ton. So I went from individual contributor to people manager to multiple function manager. It was a really excellent experience for me. So went there and then ended up after that moving to a venture capital firm that invested in B2B software. So stayed in B2B, but just on the other side of the money. It wasn't a part of my plan, but I you'll find that I'm very much not a like five-year plan kind of person. I'm evalu I evaluate the opportunities that are in front of me and especially where I'm at in my life at that time. Some of these choices are lifestyle choices too. And then I ended up realizing VC was probably not exactly the right fit for me. And I always knew that going on. <laughs> I think it was one of those things where I knew it was going to be kind of a temporary thing. And then I learned so much being on that side too. So much, so much. And I, I think it was, it's kind of like an MBA shrunken. So it was a really excellent way for me to be, a, be able to evaluate opportunities at tech companies after I was there, especially because I knew I wanted to go into a leadership role. So you really have to be bought into the success of the company and understanding where they're going, understanding their balance sheet, understanding their board and their financing, what their valuation looks like. I think we're all learning this a lot, right? I've spoken on a few podcasts lately about how I evaluated companies and opportunities. Of course, I would do a million things different now, but I think I felt really strongly and confident about the way that I was able to do that going into Mad Kudu. So yeah, that's how I started in B2B and that's uh, how I hopefully continue to grow uh, in this industry. And I really do love it. Love that. And tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think you started out in PR and then went yeah. through the content content route, which makes so much sense to yep. then get into VP and generalist. Do you even consider yourself a generalist, like VP marketing, I'm a generalist through and through, but I, I don't know if you come in from a content perspective, if you still consider yourself that now or not. 
I think I have the heart and mind of a generalist, but I was told at the beginning of my career I needed to specialize. And this is something that I've talked to a lot of folks about. Um, I think it was a function of the industry at that time. So I was coming up in like 20, I'm trying to think of when I was going into tech, 2018. And before that, like 2016, content was king. And also you needed to be known for something to get hired, right? Like you needed to have made an impact somewhere. You couldn't just be an excellent contributor and team member, right? Like you had to like a niche that people needed to fill because teams were so big back then, right? Like you were working on giant teams that had five, six, seven content marketers or like five people in demand. Like some people were hired just to do paid media. So I think it was more of a function of the way that I came up. And so I do consider myself really like if you think about VPs coming from different functions, I consider myself a content and brand kind of person. That's my background. But I think I'm really lucky that I've had the opportunity to work on smaller teams or when I went into BC or because of my business school background to understand the impact on the business. And so as I've been able to oversee demand and product marketing and marketing ops and all those other things, certainly I probably still should never put in your Marketo instance. I still like I should not do those things. But I have a pretty good understanding of how they fit into the bigger picture. And at Mad Kudu, when I first came in, I focused the first like six months on conversion. Like we hardly did any typical brand or content marketing. I just finally hired my first content marketer nine, 10 months into this job. Wow. And so I think it's more of a mindset of being a generalist and less of necessarily like what all your experience has been like. Interesting. As long as you kind of have an understanding of how it all works together then you just hire people that are smarter than you in different areas, right? (laughs) That has literally been the key to my entire career is like, I take a lot of pride in being a people manager. It's something I care a lot about and not just a manager, but a leader, right? Like someone that creates clarity, that creates focus for the team and that gives, makes them feel valuable and like gives them fences so they can run like all of those things, right? And I think the reason why I've been able to grow quickly in my career is because I'm able to attract excellent talent that I just want to be someone they want to work for, right? And they make me better all the time, right? Like I learn from every single one of them. And so that's how I'm still in contact with almost every person that's ever worked for me. And so I think actually every person. (laughs) So I've been able to really like, that's been a huge kind of exponential growth opportunity for me is having excellent people working on my team and teaching me things that I never could have learned just like as an IC or on my own. Yeah. You mentioned, I think I saw you post recently about how hiring has changed, which you just kind of touched on. And yeah, there used to be these big teams and now it's, it's tell me if I'm skewing your words a bit, but much more about the strategist and the generalist. Can you explain yep. that a little bit? Yeah. I have a hypothesis on why some folks are struggling right now to find jobs in number one, obviously, there's a lot of folks on the market, like that's just like the case, especially in tech. And I think if you came up in tech in the last like six to seven years, especially if you're on the younger side, or you took a career pivot, you were taught to align to like one number. So say you were, uh, we'll use content marketing as an example. Folks were hired onto big content marketing teams, and their only goal was inbound traffic. Yeah. Like that was their goal, right? They have no idea how that influenced pipeline. They didn't understand how that a lot of them didn't have didn't even have access to Salesforce. Like have never even seen a Salesforce instance because they were on a 40 person marketing team and the marketing ops team was like, no, no, no. Like you guys don't need to know that. Just make this up. Just make this up. Right. And I found like in my career, I don't I didn't really like that answer. I always like tried to push further. 
But I will say that most folks did really excellent in their jobs and succeeded and got their bonuses and got promoted just from being really good creators of things that drove inbound traffic or drove SEO or drove like a very specific part of the business, right? Yeah. And now you're seeing teams get a lot leaner. You're seeing teams get more strategic and executing. So like my whole team, so I have four, five folks on my team. They're all strategists and executors. And I love to be able to bring in like external resources, like whether it's technology or it's agencies to kind of flex in and out as our team grows. But you're not seeing a lot of folks wanting to bring in a ton of headcount for that because you're watching companies have to do riffs because they hired for a certain thing. And now their strategy has pivoted. And I think there's a lot of now sensitivity around not wanting to do that, right? Like we'll, yeah. you don't want to bring a bunch of people on and then realize your strategy has changed. And so I'm seeing a big rise for leaders of these more generalists that are, they have a specialty. So good example on my team, my product marketer, she is excellent. She's a really great product marketer, but she has content experience. She has cool. some CRO experience. She has, so as we flex and change, she's able to lean in and out. And she also just understands how all of these things impact the business. Like she gets mm -hmm. it, right? And I think that is something that more and more hiring managers, I think if they're not, they should be looking for as our teams are continuing to grow. And it's really, it's tough for folks that just came up in a different environment where, where they've seen success before is not necessarily where success is lying now. Obviously, there are still big marketing teams at a lot of companies, but I think it's the way that they're thinking about marketing is, is super different. Yeah, that's so interesting. What comes to mind is the quote, what got us here won't get us there. Right? Yes. How do you think people should pivot who are, let's say, looking for their next move, whether they were impacted by recent layoffs or they're just looking to move from where they are now? What do they need to do to get into this new mindset? Yeah, I've seen a lot of folks see success doing some fractional work. So going into some early stage companies as like a content marketer, but once you get in there, you know, they have you doing demand, they have you doing a bunch of other things like they, and so you're able to, to flex and see different parts of the business than you were able to see before. I know that does require a little bit of personal business development, which I know not everyone likes to do, but I've definitely seen this work really well for some folks that I know are on the market right now and are kind of also thinking about like there's a false sense of security of a full-time role, right? I think a lot of people were like, we don't want to be fractional because I want security of being somewhere yeah. full-time. We were at a conference two weeks ago and I was talking to someone that she's an excellent marketer, like has been on some of the best teams, like if you think about her resume and has been through three rifts in the last two years. And yeah. one of those things where like she could have been maintaining all of her own clients that entire time, right? And then making the decision on, do you want like you could fire that client. <laughs> she would have yeah. to decide to have, right? And yeah. so obviously there's pros and cons. I'm really simplifying that, but pros and cons yeah. to each thing, depending on your lifestyle. But I would say getting experience in other parts of the business, the more early stage you go, the easier that is, right? Because the teams are smaller. That's something that I was very scared of like four-ish years ago when I worked in a big private equity like owned company. I was like, oh, early stage sounds like I don't want to do that. And now I've seen- Security again, right? Lack of security, right? Yeah. But I've seen such a huge growth in myself because I work directly with our eight. Well, I guess my role is a little different now, but even all of my marketers work directly with our AEs every day. Yeah. Like, it's not like there's a sales enablement team and a marketing ops team and a rev ops team that like is between you and all the sales folks. It's like, yeah, we we're one revenue team. We all work together. Like we meet every single week. Our goals are all the same. 
Like, yeah. I don't care where the opportunities come from. I do in terms of obviously like understanding budget, but that's it. Like, yeah. as long as we hit our pipe goals, like we're influencing everything they do. They're influencing everything we do. So like, who cares? Like, I'm not going to parse out like whose credit gets what? Like, that's not useful. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's making them a lot better, like just business folks, which is what we're all doing. Right. We're all in the, op- we're all in the business of doing business. Right. Not in the business of running one optimization campaign on one channel right yeah so i've been talking about this a lot lately too like on camera and off camera behind the scenes like sales marketing sales marketing alignment has been a conversation point since the beginning of time (laughs) i feel like it's evolved so much and now people are getting on the same page i love what you wrote where i wrote it down and what you said with we're one revenue team because that I totally agree. It's key to look at the same numbers, the same data, and be aligned on what you're looking at for that, just to be cohesive. It doesn't matter. Credit. Like, I think I I talked about this on a previous episode, but the word credit should just be completely gone from sales and marketing discussions. It doesn't matter. But I know you have really interesting thoughts on how to align these teams through data and what real alignment is. I think something you said to me earlier was, I got the impression of no more kumbaya, right? No, forget this like fake, <laughs> fake hand-holding thing, but it's more, how do they actually align? What does true alignment mean there? Yeah, you hear a lot like be friends with your sales leader. It's like, I, I've been friends with everyone I've ever met. Like I, like yeah. I, but that doesn't mean it's going to make the business operate better. Yeah. You're going to come to the end of the road. And if you're not hitting your pipeline goals, you could be the best of friends, but we're in this for, to, to grow the business, right? And so I yeah. think that that's, And that's something I think people are feeling a lot, especially over the last year, two years, right? So yeah, what we've seen a lot of with our customers and also, so Madkudu is a revenue automation intelligence platform that helps people predict and prioritize revenue generating actions. So that's a bunch of words that really helps you understand who is best fit for your business and who looks exactly like your closed one deals and only having marketing source those and only having sales close those, right? Like I just think of, these two teams are just two different parts of, we were saying that my CEO said the other day, like there isn't an offense and a defense team. There's a soccer team, right? Like you're just one soccer team, oh, but you all play different roles, right? Yeah. And so, and like, you probably shouldn't have your offense behind your defense and you probably should like, there's definitely some rules there, but there is this kind of like one team mentality because though we all know what it takes to win. It's not like we, there's seven nets. And like everyone is shooting at different ones. It's like, it's very clear. And I think the biggest impact we've seen is using data, which is like first and third party data to be able to really model what are the best deals for your business. And this is not subjective. This is not like one of your AEs used to sell to manufacturing companies and they know a bunch of people. And so they're going to sell deals to them. And like a bunch of your marketers came from this industry and they know what works there. And so they know they can drive a bunch of MQLs there. And so they're going to just do it. Like this is where are the real opportunities coming from and how can we all align around the fact of what quality looks like? And I think that that's, we have a ton of customers that have cut their MQL volume, like in a, a fourth and doubled their revenue. It, we see about 10% of your leads or your MQLs are actually driving 90% of your revenue. And businesses don't have time to just be building volume anymore. And I think it kind of hurts my heart when I hear on calls, marketers being like, we need 5X pipeline now because sales just can't close. And it's like, 
I don't think that's it. Like, I think there is some big miss here. I do think that there is a problem now with like, folks are not buying as much software as they used to. That is real, right? Yeah. Deals that used to close super easy, not closing anymore. That is totally fair. But if you are playing two different games and marketing is just saying, I just got to fill more, fill more, fill more, and sales is still closing the same amount, it, that sounds like a lot of running <laughs> without a lot of scoring, right? And so I think there's so much value in aligning around revenue truth is what we call it. Yeah. And not just pipeline truth, but revenue truth, what actually closes. And then you get into the conversation about what grows, right? That's where CS comes in, right? Like, not just what closes, but what, like, where your LTV is, where you see the folks that are doing the best and growing, and where's your capacity to, like, obviously bring that loop back around to make them advocates and then start to to drive more revenue there. So yeah. it really does, there is, like, a numbers game here that I think is really important. And it's not just on the people. It's like your data just needs to be, it, it needs to be in a place where you're not fighting over what good looks like. Yeah. It is funny because you hear that expression, right? It's a numbers game all the time. But I think most often when you hear it from CEOs or heads, right, it's they want more top of funnel because automatically that flows down at the, these yeah. X conversion rates and X close rates. And so if you fill the top of funnel with regardless of quality, it'll eventually trickle down. But what you're saying is actually kind of the opposite, the different kind of numbers game, where if you focus on quality, then those conversion numbers will get bigger and the win rates will get bigger because quality. So the top of funnel doesn't have to be as fluffy. To exactly. End result. And still, like, I still have my team. We need to 2x pipeline. Like, I'm not, like, yeah. there's no question <laughs> that we still need to grow the top of the funnel, right? But we need yeah. to grow it in a healthy way. So I think our head of CS always says we don't want a funnel. We want a tube, I think, or a column, right? Because you don't want anything to fall out. Like, you don't want the top to be bigger than the bottom. <laughs> you want the whole thing to be, like, the you know, exact same size. Yeah, exactly. not glorious at all. <laughs> that wasn't my quote. But, yeah, I love that, that that's the goal, right? Like, obviously, we're never going to get there. There's always going to be people that fall out. We even sometimes, like, our models will say, like, so we have very good and good, good fit accounts. I'll let mediums in to say, like, I'm interested to see what that person wants to know. But we're yeah. also Series A, so our volume is smaller, right? So I know every deal intimately. I look at yeah. every single demo request, every single, like I know them all, right? Whereas if you're getting to a place where you have like a hundred thousand or something every month, which we'll be there. Yeah. You got to believe it, right? Like you're able to really parse out like the models are doing a ton of the work for you because we've gotten to a place where marketers are channel managers and yeah. salespeople are traffic cops. And we don't have like, let's just get them back to being able to market and being able to sell. Because that's why a lot of us got into this job, right? I didn't get into marketing to look at spreadsheets all day. Yeah. Even though I do it <laughs> frequently. I got into it to say, like, what is the best message for the best person at the right time? Like, that's the stuff that gets me really excited. And what are the new channels we can use? What are the creative ways? Like, what makes us different? Like, what actually makes us valuable? Like, in a real way, not just, like, sell you something that you're going to not need in a year, Right. And I think that sellers feel the same way too. Like being a seller right now is so hard. <laughs> and what they really want to do is just like our AEs, they really care. Like they're like, we know we can help you. Obviously they want to make money, but it's like they actually are doing it because they really believe in the product and they believe in the value that it brings because they feel it, right? And I think that's the good thing about selling rev tech is like we can speak to it, we feel it. And so I think that it's just getting like a lot of the grunt work out of the way so that folks can get back to doing like what they actually wanted to do in their jobs. Yeah. Do you think that MQLs are a vanity metric? This is a great question. 
I think it depends on how you define them. I think a lot of the ways they're defined, they can be. I like to think of them more as like the leading indicator. They are not board level metrics. Mm-hmm. Like they are not something that if you have a really intimate understanding of your conversion rates, they can be an excellent metric to use, right? Like if you know, if your data is showing you that, you know, your MQL to SQL conversion rate is whatever, 20%, 30%, then they're a great metric because you can yeah. see that, you know, volume to, you can, it goes down the funnel, right? But if you're just saying MQLs are like this kind of like fluffy, like did something on a website or, and it's, and there's no quality that's brought into that MQL. So it doesn't matter if they're a good fit for your business, just matters that they're there. Yeah. That is where I think you get into trouble with them. I've moved my team mostly away from them, but we're small, right? Remember, like, I think it's, I would rather all of us, we're now deal moved to discovery. So qualified deal. But I do think for larger organizations where you have like a big demand team or you have like a bunch of folks, like they need those leading indicators to be able to tell if they're going to be able to get to where they want to get to because the cycle is much longer. And so as long as they're based on quality and a real understanding of engagement and behavior, I think they can be okay. I think the problem is like, it's very easy to just say they're dead or vanity. If there's no quality involved in them, then sure. Like any human coming to your website that like clicked on one button or downloaded one ebook, it's not like, well, we did our job. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, who are they? (laughs) Yeah. Like, who are they? Like, do we care about them at all? Are they your dad? You know, like that is us, I think, important. (laughs) Like, I think it's like, you can't build a business on them, you know? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. At the end of the day, are they buying what quality? Yeah, exactly. Or do they have the capacity to? Like, is your product something that provides them value? If that's the case and you just need to do some work and you need to nurture them and you just like, awesome. That is a great metric. But I think if they're not someone that's ever going to buy your product, then like, what are we doing with them? Get them out of the funnel. Get them out of the the tube. (laughs) There we go. The tube. What is Mad Kuda's go-to-market motion? Are you more, I, I know you're talking about sales a lot. So is it sales-led or is it product-led or hybrid? Yeah, so we are sales-led. It's funny, we sell to mostly, to a lot of product-led companies. We import product data into your funnel. So you're able to see one of our founders' offices, PQLs with a new MQL, right? Because it doesn't matter what the first acronym is. It's like an XQL is what I've been calling it. It does not matter where it comes from. Is it a qualified lead? I don't care where it came from. And so- we are mostly sales-led because we have to connect all of your data. So you have to connect all of your first-party data as well as that we combine it with third-party and to, to set up your models. And so folks see value once they start to really be in a sales process, but we are committed to showing value pre-contract. So you're able to see exactly what you're, what you're going to get before the contract. We feel really confident in that. So, but we don't have like a typical freemium model. Yeah, cool. Do you think that'll ever evolve? and go into a freemium model? Has there been talk? You don't have to share any special standards behind the scenes, but curious. Yeah, and I think it it depends on the... I know when I was at OpenView, we talked a lot about sidecar products and we talked a lot about like what can freemium really look like uh-huh. if it's not like your enterprise kind of technology, if it's like a, a different part of your product. We actually have new capabilities called Mancudu Sales Intelligence, which is used for sales teams that sits within your sales force that shows all of the behavior on all of your accounts that we've seen provide so much value to SDR teams and AEs and even some demand teams, right? And so that could potentially be a freemium model. But for now, I think we are mostly, people see a lot of value once they get into conversation with our team. Cool. 
it's probably one of those things that's always on the back burner and you like bring it back up to conversation like is it time to bring this out maybe not back to back burner <laughs> yeah and i think it just it's a prioritization conversation too right it's like mm-hmm. it's a i always like to say it's, it's it's on the roadmap you know like it's one of those things where i'm not saying I'm, I'm convinced that it is but it is definitely a conversation where we prioritize what is providing the most value to our customers right now and where do we want to spend our time and then how can that translate into providing value pre-sale, right? And I think that's the way we make those decisions. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. And I'm curious, what is working? Like now that we're talking about quality and the close relationship with sales and marketing because you're focused on revenue growth at the end of the day, what do you see working for you guys and in this crazy market? Yeah, when I saw this question, I think the thing that I'm seeing the most excitement around is events. But not events for events sake, but events as pipeline accelerators and generators. So the way that we think about an event is we almost never have a booth. We almost never sponsor. But how can we find our top 15, 20 accounts that we know will be in person at these events and really use those as an opportunity to build those relationships, to get in front of those folks, to be there in real life? And because what you're really doing as a marketing team is trying to find your target accounts, right? We are trying to find them on the internet. You're trying to find them everywhere they could be. They're all there in person yeah. at a lot of these larger events, right? So how can you use these as not to optimize for the event? So like making sure you're doing all the things that the event wants you to do, but really using it as an opportunity to build relationships and to accelerate deals with the folks that are already identified as quality for you. We've done some testing where we know we can book meetings at events. Like we just recently went to an event. We booked a bunch of meetings and way more than I anticipated. But were they all quality? We got out of it. And I was like, we're probably going to get a few good deals out of this or a few good opportunities, sorry, out of this. But also events are a long-term play, which is great. But now we're shifting to a more like tier one only model. So how are we able to spend our time on the right accounts because if we get like 10 out of those 15 like that's a way bigger impact right than getting four out of 17 or something so there's a lot of opportunity in using these as kind of accelerators for your pipeline we are kind of early in this i can't say that it's like a hundred percent working yet but i'm seeing a lot of really good leading indicators on this that makes sense what does it kind of look like when you break it down, I hear that you're, you're kind of new to doing events this way, but do you first identify a show as an opportunity to invest in because you're seeing that so many of these people who are already in open deals are going to be at the same place? Or how do you decide what show to go to and how do you set it up for success like logistically? Yeah. So a lot of this too is being able to like scrub previous attendee lists. So if you're able to look at an attendee list, scrub it and then apply your model. So this is where we do use our own product to see like 30% of the attendees are very good fits on like our model for being like willing and able to buy their likelihood, their likelihood to grow. And so this is a really good opportunity, right? And then also the bigger ones like Dreamforce and Inbound, we know are always a good opportunity because like you certainly know that there's going to be enough folks there, like within our target account list for sure, specifically because we sell to revenue teams. So I think there's a really big opportunity for the smaller ones though, to make sure that even if you're looking at the list from the year before, or you're looking at the sponsor list, or you're looking at something like that, if you can pull it down, you can scrub it and you're able to see what is the kind of quality for your company at that show based on the cost. So you just do kind of like a cost benefit analysis there pretty simple ROI calculation. And then you're able to say, great, let's send a founder, an executive, and a technical peer 
and let's have them start all the conversations, open up the opportunities, and then we pass it over to an AE to orchestrate the deal. And that's the kind of current way we're thinking about it. It has been working pretty well, but you definitely need the ability to be able to predict the ROI on the event by using kind of a quality index of your uh, like current prospects. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure a lot of times people wonder, teams wonder, oh, why are we going to this show and not this show? So if you can do this so data-driven, like this is the printout, <laughs> this is actually yep. why you can see percentage-wise here we, where the opportunity lies and the ROI. So we're going to go to this show and not so much this show this year. It's great to be able to validate why you're choosing certain shows. Totally. And I actually had this conversation with an event marketer a few weeks ago because she was saying I'm asked every year to predict the ROI on events. And I'm looking back and trying to attribute deals to the event when I wish that I could just look forward. And I'm like, exactly. That's what we are. We're like, I'm not anti-attribution, but I am like, but the way that we think about it is predict based on quality what you believe will come out of these events, right? Instead of looking back, because every year things change so much. Like how are you able to even, especially if your sales cycle is long, because a lot of our customers, their sales cycle is like 12 to 18 months. And it's like, they went to an event four years ago. Like, is that helpful? (laughs) Like, I don't think that's really helpful, right? But if you know that events are really good, either pipeline generators or pipeline accelerators or customer experiences. So say five of our top 10 customers are at this event, you're going like just go (laughs) like that is like even because think about the cost of just flying to a customer right think about how much that costs right and think about the fact of or sending them a gift or sending them like bringing them out to dinner or any of these things it's like you can send two founders like multiple execs all to meet with five customers if they're all literally in the same location as long as you're really thinking about the value that it's bringing that customer, right? Like they're all getting invited to a million offsite events. They're getting invited to a bunch of things, but like, can you provide them some value while they're there? And can you optimize the opportunity of the fact that they're all together? Yeah. It keeps coming back to value and quality, right? Quality in, value out for the customer and just keep that cycle going. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think the more you intimately know your customer, the easier this is for sure. But I think getting away from channels, I think this goes back to like one of my original comments, getting away from channels, like optimizing a channel and optimizing the customer experience, right? Like that channel is a part of their experience because they're there. So you should be thinking about what you want to do with them or they're your prospect, right? Instead of thinking about like, how can we make sure we get everything out of this event? Like our booth is perfect or our this is perfect or we get all the scans we can get or whatever. Yeah. It's like, how do I have three like quality, awesome conversations? How do I send my founder for two days so that he can really make relationships? And how can we make sure that all of those demos are super tailored? Like I would go into those conversations, not even planning to show the product. And they'd be like, hey, can I just see it? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. like totally. Like I'm happy to show it to you. And because it's an authentic conversation that's providing them value. Yeah. Love that. It's a very strategic approach to events versus just showing up and winging it. And again, I badges, right? I always wondered why I hated events because <laughs> I did, I never liked them because they just felt like a lot of stuff. Like it was just like, yeah. I would get like a million invoices for like a screen and like a surge protector and a rug. And I'm like, I yeah. don't want, this is so much time for my four person or three person at the time team to manage it's like yeah what actually what we should be, should have been spending time on is like there are four really high value deals that are like in the mix or we know that we've been talking to these folks for a long time or we wanted to get in front of them like 
I want my team focused on those things instead of flights and hotel blocks and like there's yeah. it's just like a lot of work like people think that it's not a lot of work it's so teamwork <laughs> well you were just touching on your team too and making sure they're focused on things that matter right there's two things i want to touch on before we wrap up yeah one is something you said about leadership over management and that it's something you take pride in I'm curious, what are a couple of your keys to success there and how you found your place as a leader and working with your team as a a people manager? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me was finally feeling like I started to find my groove as like a manager and a leader because I started to, so I worked for someone at QuickBase, the CMO at QuickBase that really was like the most authentic leader I'd ever seen. He just is himself right like he is who he is and he leads in the way that he does and and he's really open to feedback like very like humble in terms of consistently growing and changing but is very much himself and I finally was like wait I can be successful and also look like that right because I think for a long time I felt like I had to fit into this like very specific mold of being like super professional really buttoned up not personal like all of these things that are so hard for me like so hard for me I am very like open. I try and create a lot of psychological safety on my team. That's the kind of environment I want to work in, right? I want people to feel like they can come and talk to me about things they're struggling with or things they're feeling really good about. I want to know about like, I'm not trying to like co-opt their personal lives or anything, but like if they want to tell me, I think that's great, right? Like, and I think I'm not saying like you have to bring your whole self to work. Like I please keep some of it to yourself. I love that for you. But I'm saying I want I want to build an environment where you feel like you can do your best work because you're not trying to be someone you're not. That's really what I mean. And so I think where I found the most success too is really providing strategic clarity. Like that is the number one thing. Like if I'm able to show my team, this is what good looks like. This is what we're trying to do and achieve and this is the impact that it's going to have on the business, that if you hire great people and you provide them that fence, they're not going to sit at the door and be like, can I run? Can I leave? Like, I don't know. I think about my dogs all the time that before I had a fence, they were like, can I go outside? Like, I don't know if I should go. And, or how far can I go? Like, I don't know where the end is, right? It's a dick end now. Then. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, one of my dogs digs out of the fence all the time. So she's a bad <laughs> example here, but she's going to do that either way. But my team and I'm like they know so they can know that they can run and high performers want to run and burnout happens when they don't see success from that running it doesn't happen when they run too far or run too hard it's because folks that really are driven by not just achievement on their own but like seeing business success seeing team success those are the people I want on my team right especially at early stage And those folks just need to know what good looks like and where they're going. And then they are going to run and they'll check in with you every now and again. But you have to provide them with like, I hate the word delegate because it feels very task oriented. Yeah. And I think a lot of first time managers start to say, "Okay, well, I want to delegate some of my work. And it's like, that is not your job at all, actually. (laughs) Like your job isn't to delegate. Your job is to provide a new container like for work that gives that person a purpose to be able to then run toward, right? At the beginning, it could feel a little like delegating if it's like splitting your job in two. That's potentially what could happen. But the more and more I've seen like management versus leadership is 
this idea of showing where we're going and they're able to then know exactly where they want to be in there. And they feel really invested in the success of that work too. Because it's not like I just something I told them to do. Sometimes you have to come back down and you have to like go out in the yard and tell them where to go because they're like a little lost. <laughs> but this metaphor is getting away from me. I love it though. Uh, and then I'm going to be the one that digs under the fence. <laughs> there always is. And sometimes there's always going to be the people that stand at the door and you're going to have to be like, wow, this is not the right environment for you. Yeah. Because what you really need is a lot more structure. And I have too many people that work for me or too much. Like right now, I still do a lot of work, right? Like I still do a lot of like, the if no one's watching the video i'm, I'm typing with me <laughs> i still do a lot of like of shipping right because we're early stage right and so if a person needs a ton of guidance and like a lot of hand holding like that is maybe not the right envi- environment for them which is okay and i think that that's another really important thing is like coaching people for the, the entirety of their career and not just this one job right like i still have i meet with my previous direct reports all the time like about where they want to go and what they want to do because I'm invested in their careers, not just this job. Because sometimes the job is a wrong fit and yeah, it just and is. Okay. And it's not good for them or for the company or for me or for anyone involved if they're not going to feel good, right? And so I think really showing that mutual respect though, that you see them, you see what they excel at, you see what they're good at, you see where they want to grow. As long as you're aligned there, that's the management part, I think, is really being dedicated to not just leading the work, but also helping them manage their career as well. Yeah, really being invested in their growth. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Shannon, thank you so much. I feel like there's so much more I want to talk to you about and a million more questions I have. So we will have to have a regroup when you come back from leave. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I'm leaving in five weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> crazy. Yeah, very crazy. But... Yeah. I know. Yeah. It changed. But yes. thank you so much for carving out the time for us. I so appreciate it. And thank you for joining us. Yeah, this has been awesome. Yeah. If folks have any more questions, I'm always free to chat. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And I will link to Shannon's LinkedIn and show notes. So easy reach there, but you can always just search her up, uh, Shannon Curran. So thank you for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Women in B2B Marketing. If you loved the episode, which I'm sure you did, then just go over, write a review, share with a friend. Sharing is caring. So show the love. Thank you, everybody. Thanks.